postmodern and post-Christian are both terms that the, the church seriously needs to retire. We're going to the world to tell them who we are, and we're not going to the world to present who God is. The world in which so much is focused on building walls and keeping people out, an alternative way to live is to live by... It's almost like raising up a white flag and saying, ah, it's all the secular people's fault, and no one's listening or coming to our evangelistic how can we redesign Adventism to be effective at reaching emerging Western culture? That's what the Story Church podcast is all about. Adventism redesigned. Hey everyone, it's Pastor Marcus here and I want to welcome you back to another episode of the Story Church podcast. We are going to be diving into part two of uh, the art of missional living in just a minute. Uh, but before we do, you'll notice that the audio in this episode is significantly different to the audio in the previous episode. And that's because the previous episode was preached at a church, whereas today's episode was preached on Zoom. Um, the second sermon in this series, uh, I, I did it on Zoom during uh, a lockdown that we had here in Perth due to COVID-19 uh, spread in, in our city. Uh, so it, it is going to sound a little bit different. Also, I just wanted to, to point out that I, I did um, notice in the previous episode that um, there was a, there was a few like kind of like glitches in the audio where it would kind of sound kind of wonky. Um, that's because the the file, the audio file that that particular sermon came from was from the actual live, um, the live stream. And so in, in the live stream itself, there was, you know, a bit of uh, bandwidth issues. And so that was reflected in the, in the recording. So for the future episodes, I'll do my best to try and get the actual like digital files from the mic to the board rather than do the ones that, that went through the live stream. So we don't have that problem anymore. But anyways, that aside, uh, I hope you guys enjoy today's episode, part two of The Art of Missional Living. And, um, and and just a few more things before we turn over to that. I just want to say a huge thank you to all the patrons who have been supporting the Story Church Project. Thank you guys so much. Really means a lot. So helpful. And also encouraging and affirming uh, when when people say, hey, yeah, look, I'll, I'll be a patron for the Story Church Project and help support its its mission, its vision, and its its message to, to the church and to the culture. So thank you guys so much. And uh, if that's something that you would like to uh, just jump into and say, hey, yeah, I'd love to be a patron for the Story Church Project. If you go to the storychurchproject.com, on the top toolbar, there is a link called uh, support, I believe is the name of the link. You click on that button and it'll take you to the Patreon page. Other, otherwise, you just go straight to patreon.com slash the Story Church Project and um, it shows you the page. There are different tiers that you can sign up for to help support uh, the Story Church Project. And it really helps in terms of um, advertising and um, different, uh, different needs that I often have with, with, um, with the project. Because the, the bottom line is the way algorithms work in social media nowadays, if you're not paying for advertising, nobody sees you. That's just kind of the way it is. So um, yeah, thank you guys so much. I really appreciate all the patrons. It does make a difference. I do notice it. And um, it, thank you, thank you, thank you very much. Um, also wanted to just make another note for those who are interested in the R3 Network um, online training school. This is, it hasn't gone fully public yet. Uh, we're taking it slow and um, we're still building the website, but the online school is complete. So if you are interested in a church model uh, that has been specifically designed for secular outreach 
and maybe you're a church planter or maybe you're revamping, redesigning your local church and you want some, uh, some guidance or, or maybe a, a tool, a tool set that you can use, um, something that you can add to your toolbox in terms of developing effective missional community and, and church community to reach our emerging Western context, then you definitely want to check out the R3 Online School. So just send me a message um, uh, on social media or through the website and let me know that you'd be interested and I'll give you all the information that you need uh, to hop onto the R3 Network. Um, other than that, I've got nothing else. So without further ado, I'm going to go ahead and transition over to The Art of Missional Living, part two. Welcome. Welcome to Zoom. <laughs> um, I hope you're all enjoying another another weekend on lockdown. It's strange. It seems to happen whenever there's like a long weekend. You know, it's like there's a holiday coming up. Everyone's excited. They've made big plans. Um, and I know it doesn't happen all the time, but it does seem to definitely synchronize itself with uh, with long weekends. So, um, yeah, it's going to be interesting, interesting to see how we go Monday, whether or not there really is any sort of community spread that will. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, make this go longer, but I am praying that that is not the case. Um, but, you know, as in many ways, as as uncomfortable as this is, um, it, it and at the same time it it really highlights the um it really highlights kind of the, the main point I've been talking about in the last few sermons um especially when it comes to to mission in our present age and, and we're seeing the the volatility of of our current context it's so unpredictable uh, that the things that we typically do for for evangelism are are just increasingly harder to plan and execute because you kind of don't know um, whether something like this is going to happen again. And it, it just kind of sneaks up on you, uh, shows up when least expected. So by the way, if you guys see me a little distracted, I'm not distracted. I'm, I'm fully here. It's just I'm seeing people log in and I got to let them in um, or trying to log in. So I got to let them in. But yeah, anyways, what I was saying is this is just a sort of a, a reaffirmation of what we've been talking about that whatever mission looks like on this in this year 2021 perhaps even next year 2022 perhaps even for the foreseeable future um whatever mission looks like i think is going to look increasingly less uh like the big events and increasingly more along the lines of what the bible calls the priesthood of all believers and in many ways, I think scenarios like this really get us back into the Bible and get us back into focusing on, you know, what, what does the Bible teach about how to reach our cities and how to reach our neighborhoods and, and what exactly is the priesthood of all believers, which is what we've been um, discussing and what I'm going to expand on a little bit more today. So just to be, uh, just to do a quick little sort of foundation, the priesthood of all believers is, um, it basically means that every single one of us, every single believer is a priest in God's kingdom. And the priest's role, as you look through the Bible, the priest really has one very basic role, and that is to show the way between heaven and earth. The priest's role in the Old Testament is to be sort of a bridge between heaven and earth. And so that metaphor carries on into the New Testament, and that when it teaches that the believers are, or the church is a priesthood of all believers, what it's attempting to convey is that all believers are tasked with being these mini bridges between heaven and earth. Now, of course, we know that Jesus is the only true bridge between heaven and earth. And so I guess on a practical sense, what this means is that he's calling all of us as his church to be the kinds of people who are actively connecting others to him, the true bridge 
between heaven and earth. And so what this means is that connecting others to Jesus, leading others to Jesus, isn't something that's reserved for a special class within the church, a professional, a pastor, an evangelist, um, an elder. It's, this is really not something that can be outsourced to, to programs or events, but it's the job that all of us are called to do. Every single one of us as followers of Jesus, as believers in Jesus, are called to be priests in God's kingdom, to lead others to Jesus. But I think the challenge, and, and we all know that, I'm not saying anything that we don't already know, um, but I think the challenge that we often encounter is a practical challenge because over the years, we've forgotten what it looks like to be the priesthood of all believers. Maybe we've gotten used to uh, depending on a professional doing the job, and we kind of lost the art of being priests in our cities, in our neighborhoods. And so that's why I'm re-exploring the story of Paul here in Acts chapter 17, because I fundamentally, fully, totally believe that mission in 2021 in the Jundalup city, or really anywhere, um, is going to, the effectiveness of our mission is going to be proportional to how much each of us embrace our calling to be priests, uh, priesthood of all believers. The big programs, the big sort of gathering events are gonna be really difficult to plan and execute. But each of us are still in contact with others. And so what does it actually look like to be a priest in my life, in your life? What does that look like practically? So this Thursday, for example, we're supposed to have a business meeting. Hopefully things have cleared up and we can have our business meeting. If not, we might be doing that on Zoom as well. And one of the main things that I wanted to talk about at that business meeting is mission. You know, what, what are we doing in 2021? What is our plan as a Joondalup community for the city of Joondalup? And again, I really fundamentally believe that what we do and the success of what we do is going to be proportional to each of us embracing our call to be priests in our city. And so I don't just want to say that, though, because, you know, like I said, anyone can say that. Anyone can say we're all called to be priests. We're all called to be out there sharing the gospel. The real question is, what are the practical skills? How do you do it? And so that's why I want to look at Paul and begin to mine from his story practical tips that anyone can use for reaching their neighbors, for reaching their city. So I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Acts 17. This is where we left off last time. We were looking at the story of Paul in the city of Athens. So um, make sure you turn over to Acts chapter 17. Um, and uh, and we'll, we'll take off from where we left off. But just a quick recap before, before I do that. I believe we're going to be taking off from verse 22 today. Um, but a quick recap. Paul is... He was in the middle of basically running and hiding. <laughs> he had been in, um, in Thessalonica and the Jews had chased him out of there. He went to Berea and they had chased him out of there as well. They were, they were basically persecuting him. Um, and so Paul had basically become public enemy number one in the cities that he was spreading the gospel. And so when we get to Acts 17 to the story of Athens, Paul ends up in Athens because uh, he's basically on the lamb, as they say. Uh, he's running, he's fleeing, he's hiding. And, and he arrived at the Greek city of Athens. And what we read, or the story that we explored the last time we were together, uh, someone's logging in, just give me a sec, there we go. Yeah, the story that we explored the last time we were together is that when Paul arrived in Athens, he starts roaming around. And he finds that the city of Athens is full of idols. I mean, just idols everywhere. And his soul was provoked by the deep idolatry in the region. So... Paul basically got to work. 
and he starts going to the synagogue and he starts going to the marketplace and he begins reasoning and conversing with the locals. And the story ends by telling us that the influencers of the city, the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, invited him to their meeting so that he could explain more about this Jesus that he was preaching. Now, this is big, you guys. This is big because Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, um, you know, <laughs> the things that they believed and taught were so opposite to what Jesus believed and taught. So here, here's a really simple, just a sort of um, caricature. Um, Epicureans basically believed that the primary aim of life was pleasure. <laughs> that was their belief. The primary aim of life is the pursuit of pleasure. Um, and so they developed this they developed this sort of philosophical system through which people could pursue pleasure without going so overboard that they ended up ruining their lives. And that was essentially what Epicurean philosophy was all about. Um, they did believe in gods, but they believed that the gods were not involved in the world at all. They were, they were up there, but they didn't get involved. So those were the Epicureans. And then the Stoics were kind of the opposite of the Epicureans. The Stoics believed that the primary aim of life was the development of self-control. They were very disciplined. They were very unemotional. So if you, maybe you've met someone in life before who's very unemotional, very straight-faced. We tend to say that they're Stoic. Um, and this is an allusion to the Stoic philosophers. They were, they were very anti-emotion, very rational, disciplined. And everything in life to them was the development of self-control. And they believed in God, but they didn't see him as personal. He was more of an energy, uh, the universe. And he was sort of embedded in everything. There was a bit of pantheism going on in Stoic philosophy as well. So basically, you know, you have with these two philosophers, these two classes of philosophers, ideas and perspectives that are just really opposite of what Jesus came to teach. And yet these philosophers are so intrigued by what, I mean, some of them are making fun of him, but others are in, really intrigued by what he's saying. And so they invite him, come and tell us some more. And this is where we left off the last time we were together is when the, the philosophers had invited Paul to come with them to one of their primary meetings to, to tell them some more. So Basically, Paul's missionary approach in Athens appears to be making a connection. And so obviously, as followers of Jesus who want to make a connection with our city, it makes sense to say, okay, um, if Paul's missionary approach seems to be making a connection, there's things that we can learn from him. And so we looked at three key things the last time we were together. Uh, we looked, number one, at how Paul, in his example, demonstrates that the in order to reach a city you have to go where people are right you're not going to reach a city by just hiding within the walls of your comfort zone you've got to go where people are and over the next few sermons as we're exploring this i'm going to talk about what that looks like a little bit more not only in our present context but in our individual lives as well going where people are meeting people where they are again it's really easy to say these things and talk about them it's a whole other thing to say what does it actually look like so we're going to we're going to explore that and expand on that but for now i think we can at least agree that we're never going to reach our city um, while hanging out in comfort zones. We've got to go where people are. Um, the second thing that we saw is that Paul was provoked by the idolatry of Athens, but he didn't let the provocation morph into condemnation. To the contrary, the provocation became fuel for respectful missional engagement. And, and th I think this is absolutely key. And in many ways, the number one thing I observed that blocks many churches from reaching their city 
is they are provoked by the evils of the city. And um, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm glad we, we shouldn't be comfortable with them. But then the provocation morphs into condemning and hiding and erecting walls that separate us from others. And I think this is tragic because no one is going to be more provoked by sin and evil than God himself. And yet, how did God respond to human sinfulness? He came and he incarnated and lived among us in the person of Jesus. He made friends with us. He healed and cared for us. He spent time with us. So God's provocation of our sin turned into redemption, not condemnation. Right? We read this in John 3, 17. He didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. And so I think this is the example that Paul is following and is the example that we should follow as well. And the third thing that we saw in the previous sermon is that when we leave our comfort zones and engage people where they are in a Christ-centered way, the Spirit of God gets to work. So what I want to do in the next few sermons, starting with today's and then going into future sermons, is I want to explore these three themes of Paul's missionary work, and I want to expand on them. So we're going to expand on these three. What does it look like to meet people where they are? What does it look like to engage people respectfully? What does it look like to um, engage people in a Christ-centered way, to allow our provocation to turn into mission? What does that actually look like in a practical way? So again, we're going to build on these and I fully believe that by the time this sermon series is done, uh, each and every one of us are going to have really powerful biblical tools through which we can actively begin to engage our city in a way that will work in the present scenario that we find ourselves in. So what we're going to do today is we're going to take a step forward. We're going to go back to Acts 17, and we're going to take off from where we left off. Um, I'm going to say a prayer, and then we'll dive right in. Dear Father, thank you so much for the opportunity that we have with technology that even in the middle of a lockdown, we can still gather and we can still spend time in your word. And so I pray that you speak to us, speak to us through the story of Paul. Uh, help us to learn, to discover, to be challenged by what Paul is doing here in Athens and, and what he did elsewhere as well as a person whose heart beat with mission and with a passion for others. Help us to learn from him, to mine lessons from your word that we can then use to reach our own city in Jundalup. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so Acts 17. I'm going to take off from verse 22. So um, go ahead and have a look at verse 22. I would normally ask if you're there, say I'm there, but you know, you're all muted, so let's not do that. Um, <laughs> uh, Acts chapter 17, verse 22. It says this, Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus. I'm going to pause there. I'm going to pause there because this is massive. I want, you to, I want you to use your imagination. I want you to let your imagination actually grasp what's happening here. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, is standing in the midst of the Areopagus. Now, what is the Areopagus? The Areopagus, I'm not going to get too historical here, um, but it was basically a center of pagan thought. That's what the Areopagus was. All the philosophers gathered there, sometimes on a daily basis, the pagan philosophers, they would talk about any new ideas that were floating around. Um, they would talk about government. They would talk about politics. They would talk about the gods. Um, in fact, the very name Areopagus is a combination of the Greek word Ares, which was the god of war. And um, I can't remember exactly how much of that word is the other Greek word. I think it's Pegas, which is a reference to Iraq. So it was like the Rock of Ares is basically what the center was named after. So basically, again, bottom line, it was a center of pagan thought. And Paul is here by invitation. I mean, this is just wild. You know, um, I'm not sure that 
anyone else was ever invited to the Areopagus to, to proclaim the gospel. But it, it would be like being invited today smack into the middle of a secular university and being asked, hey, talk to us about this message that you're proclaiming. I mean, it's really unheard of. It's really bizarre. But notice what Paul does. Paul engages this scenario in a way that is absolutely mind-blowing. It's challenging, but it's mind-blowing as well. We can learn some amazing things from this. Notice verse 22. Paul begins speaking. I'm still in verse 22, and he says this. Paul said, Man of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. Now, if you have an older version of the Bible, it might actually say something different. It might say something along the lines of, I perceive that you're too... Um, What's the word I'm looking for? Because I don't have it written here. Um, superstitious, too superstitious. And I'm going to comment on that a little bit later on. It's not a very good translation of the Greek that's there. Um, because in, in, in that translation, it kind of comes across as though Paul's insulting them. But a more accurate translation of the Greek tense there is that Paul is actually building a bridge. He's making a compliment. He's essentially telling them, I can see that you take your pursuit and your reverence for religion very seriously. That's essentially what he's saying. And so he begins his presentation with a compliment to the pagans. He celebrates their commitment to spiritual pursuit. He doesn't say, hey, men of Athens, I've been walking around your city and I've been provoked by all your idols and how dare you, you idolaters, you know? Uh, this is wrong, you need to stop. This is, this is not how Paul begins his exploration with them. Instead, Paul finds common ground and he focuses on that. He focuses on that common ground. And I think this is the very first practical lesson in engaging a, a, a city of unbelievers. It's this, the very first practical lesson we can learn from Paul. Don't burn bridges, build them, right? Don't burn bridges, build them. Now, that might seem like common sense, but to be quite honest, it's not that common. <laughs> um, I'll give you guys an example. I, I, uh, I was doing a wedding sometime, um, some time ago and, uh, for, for, for a couple, an Adventist couple. And um, the mother of, of the bride approaches me and says, my, all my family is going to be at this wedding. And they're all very secular. And they've been to church events before, funerals, etc., and the pastors in their sermons have always been have always said things that have offended them. I think in 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 she said in in one of their um in in a funeral the pastor took the whole sermon to basically make fun of atheists, and half of her family was atheists. So obviously that didn't go over very very well. So she said, you know, they haven't had a good experience with church, um, and since you're doing the sermon at the at the wedding. Can you say something, you know, speak in a way that is actually going to make sense to them and they'll, they'll finally have a good experience. So I accepted the challenge. I said, sure, that's, that's exactly what I'm going to do. I'm going to preach a message that meets them where they are. Obviously, the focus is the wedding. It's not them, but I'm going to speak in a way that makes sense to them and that doesn't create unnecessary walls between us and them. Uh, so that's essentially what I did. I preached on Jesus and the Feast of Cana. I focused on the themes in that sermon that all of us could, could celebrate together. And I presented the character of God in a way that they understood. Um, so I was really surprised when she came up to me afterwards and she was disappointed because in my sermon, I didn't take the opportunity to hone in on the whole Jesus turning water into wine and spend time talking about how 
drinking alcohol is evil because half her family, her secular family drunk alcohol. And she was disappointed that I didn't take the time to just like hammer them on this drinking. And I was so confused. I was like, wait a minute, you told me to build bridges, you know, like you don't reach people if you begin with condemnation, pointing out what they're doing wrong. That's, that's not how you reach people. You reach people by building bridges, not burning them. And if I stand here and start going on about how evil alcohol is, how is that going to make them want to hear anything else about Jesus, right? I, I just spent my entire time insulting them. Now, let them encounter Jesus, let them discover the character of God, let them build a relationship with Jesus, and then we can explore some of these other themes in scripture like alcohol and what God's will for that is. It makes more sense in that scenario. So basically the very first step that we encounter in Paul as he reaches, as he's preaching to the Athenians is reaching people in our city. The very first step rather to reaching people in our city is approach them with respect, value their spiritual journey. We might not agree on all things, but we can build bridges. And here's the key. Because again, I want to be practical here. I just don't just want to speak poetically. I want to give you guys actual things you can do, homework that you can actually do to develop these skills. The most basic way to build a bridge with someone who doesn't have your faith is to search for common ground with people. Um, think of it, I, I like to think of it this way. I believe that God is at work in everyone's life. And so what this means is that when I begin engaging a person who isn't a believer in Jesus, I ask God to show me, God, show me the fingerprints of your work in their life already. Show me where you're already active in their life. And as I begin to search and explore, I find little bridges, little areas where I can see God's fingerprints at work in their lives. And that's what I focus on. That's how I build those bridges. And, and I'll give you guys a, a quick example. I've, I might have used the example in a previous sermon, but uh, I think it's it's worth repeating. Uh, a friend of mine, uh, Fahad, he's Muslim. And um, when I first met him, I wanted to engage him in a conversation on faith, right? But I wanted to do it in a respectful way. So we had just pulled up to McDonald's. He'd ordered a, um, a egg and cheese McMuffin, no, no pork, no meat. Now, of course, I knew why he ordered no pork, um, but I asked him, I said, why did you order the egg and cheese McMuffin without pork? And he said to me, well, I am Muslim and in Islam, pork is haram. Haram is the Arabic or Islamic word for forbidden. It's, it's a sin. And I said, oh, that's really interesting because I'm, I'm a follower of Jesus. And I also believe that pork is haram. And he looked at me. And he said, really? Because where he comes from, all the Christians are the pig farmers, you know? So he was really surprised to meet a Christian who also agreed with him. And we just, we spent the next three hours talking about faith. And he talked to me about his faith in, in why he was Muslim. I talked to him about why I believed in Jesus. And to this day, we're still friends. We're still connected. And it was, it was a really easy way, a bridge, right? I could have started with, you know, Allah is this or that, but we began with a bridge. And this is what we see Paul doing here. Um, now, again, as I mentioned earlier, some older translations do have the text sort of interpret or translates it um, in, in a way that makes it seem like Paul is insulting them. You know, you guys are really superstitious. Um, but again, this is, this is an unfortunate translation. The Greek word used here can be interpreted positively and negatively. It can be translated either way, depending on the tense. And so the tense in the original Greek is actually in the positive. Paul is giving them a compliment. He's basically saying, I perceive that you are very committed 
to your religious pursuit. And so with this introductory statement, Paul has built a bridge. And the thing about bridges is that bridges allow conversations to flow both ways. It's not a one-way bridge, right? It allows conversation to flow both ways. And this is absolutely key to being able to engage people who don't share our beliefs and who we want to share the gospel with, building bridges. So the very first lesson that we learn from Paul is, again, build bridges by focusing on common ground. But now the question that I want to turn to is, how do you do that, right? Okay, build bridges, look for the fingerprints of God in their life. Okay, but, but what does that look like? Can we get a little bit more practical on what that actually looks like and how I can actually do that? So let's keep reading the story because we actually see that Yes, it does get significantly more practical. Verse 23, Paul is continuing to speak, and this is what he says to the Athenians. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. All right, we're going to pause again. All right, I really want you to think about what Paul has just said here. As I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship. The Greek word there for considering is anathiorio, and it basically means to look at attentively, to, to consider well, or to observe accurately. In other words, Paul isn't just casually roaming through Athens, and he's looking at the things that the Athenians worship and making superficial assumptions about them. Paul's actually taking his time. He's looking at these idols. He's studying them carefully. He's considering. He's reasoning. He's thinking. He's exploring the objects of their worship. And he's doing his best to understand what they represent to the people of that city. Now, this enables, this opens up a, a, I think, a really helpful tip when it comes to engaging people who don't share our worldview, engaging people who are not Christians. Um, there are two ways to share your faith with people, two primary ways in which you can approach sharing your faith with people. Um, one is what I call the top-down approach, where you're up here and the person that you're sharing your faith with is down here, and it's a top-down approach. And the other is a side-by-side -side approach where you're walking together. Now, the top-down approach to mission goes something like this. I'm a Christian, a Seventh-day Adventist. I know my Bible. I have the truth. Therefore, I have nothing to learn from others. They learn from me, top-down. And my job in this relationship is to always be right and to prove my point, even if I have to argue with others in order to do it. So in this top-down approach, essentially you are the guru with all the answers and this person is, they, they're just learning from you. This isn't, a, this isn't really a bridge, right? This isn't a, a mutual conversation. This is top-down, you're the guy with all the answers, you're the lady with all the answers. Now the problem with the top-down approach, apart from the fact that it never ever works, um, it doesn't, it doesn't result in good relationships um, is that even if you succeed in the top-down approach, there's an old adage that goes something like this, a man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. Right? You, may, you may succeed at arguing your point really, really, really well, 
but have you really succeeded at reaching that person for Christ? That's the real question. There's um there's a an old poem that a, a friend of mine, uh, Braden Godfrey, he shared this poem with me. His his dad, um, Pastor Godfrey, who who used to pastor here in WA, uh, he told me his dad would always share this poem, and I I thought it was pretty funny, so I I copied it. <laughs> it goes like this, and some of you might have heard this. Um, there was a man called Mike O'Day who died defending his right of way. His way was right, his will was strong, but he's just as dead as if he were wrong. <laughs> I just, I thought that was funny. So I thought I would share it. Um, arguing with people, right? Approaching people with this top-down angle seldom ever works. It, it tends to push people away. But here, let me make a, an even more important point. If you do manage to bring someone into the church with this approach, guess what they're going to do to others? Right? If we bring people into the church through argumentation and debate, we win them to argumentation and debate. And uh, some have suggested that maybe that's why in many of our churches, you know, people just want to argue all the time because it's all they've ever seen. It's how they were reached and it's how they then relate to others. Now, Paul isn't using this approach. Paul is engaging in what I referred to earlier as a side-by-side -side approach. He knows the truth, okay? And, and, and this is really important to recognize because the side-by-side -side approach isn't pluralism. It isn't watering down the truth. He knows the truth, but he also recognizes that he can learn from others so that he can journey alongside them with respect and admiration instead of pride and arrogance. The top-down approach says, I have all the answers, so I'm above you. The side-by-side -side approach says, I'm searching for truth, and you're searching for truth, so let's search together. So Paul's walking around the city. He sees these idols. He's provoked because he knows the truth about these things. But now he's speaking to the Athenians, and he says, hey, I perceive that you guys take this really, really seriously. In fact, I went through your city, and, and, I, and, and I considered, and I studied, and I observed things. And this is what I found. He's, he's engaging respectfully with their worldview. And when you do this, what I have found in my own personal experience, because the side-by-side -side approach is the way I engage with everyone. And, and what I have found is when you do this, people respect you because you know they know you aren't there to just shove your mind into their mind, right? You're, you're not there to shove your ideas down their throat. Um, and what I have found is it's almost counterintuitive that when you journey side by side with people, you, I have actually found more success in leading them to an objective truth of the gospel than when I've tried the top-down approach, which usually scares people away. So Paul becomes a student, essentially, of the culture that he's trying to reach. He assumes a side-by-side -side posture. Again, he's still 100% convicted of the truth. He's not blurring the truth in the name of, let me just be your friend, right? He's very clear, and we're going to see this as he preaches his sermon in the, in the next presentation, that Paul is very clear on what the truth is. But his posture isn't arrogant. It's humble. It's relational. He's walking with people, not dragging them. Now, I want to make one final point before I move on to the third and last point for this morning, and it's this. The side-by-side -side approach is not simply more respectful. It's also more reproducible. One of the things that I find with people um, when it comes to sharing their faith in church is so many people are scared to do it because they feel like they don't have all the answers, right? They feel like, what happens if I start sharing faith with someone and they ask me questions and I don't know the answer and I can't explain it? And, you know, and so <clears throat> they kind of stop themselves or limit themselves because they're scared that they might not have all the information or all the data. But the thing is, when you're in a side-by-side -side relationship with someone, you don't have to have all the answers. 
the top-down approach is kind of like the teacher-student approach where you feel like you've got to know everything because you're the teacher, you're the student. But a side-by-side -side approach is very simply, you're searching for truth, I'm searching for truth, let's search together. And as I'm having relationship with someone and they ask a question, it's very easy for me to say, honestly, I don't know the answer to that question. But since we're both searching, I'm going to go home, I'm going to study, I'm going to read up on it, and we can talk about it next time. So the side-by-side -side approach is actually not simply better in terms that it's more respectful of others, but it's more reproducible. You don't have to be a theological guru. You can, you can be anyone. You, you can know very little of scripture and engage someone in this relationship. And what you'll find is that you grow through it as well, because there's no pressure to know everything. Um, so you're journeying together side-by-side. But now I want to ask one final question to make this even more practical. We, we see that Paul has engaged his audience respectfully. He's building bridges instead of burning them. We see that Paul has taken the time to get to know his audience. He's journeying side by side with them. He, he didn't just show up at Athens and say, I have all the answers, just listen to me. No, he's journeying, he's understanding, he's, he's relating to them. But what does journeying with someone side by side look like in the nitty gritty, right? These are, we've, we've looked at some overarching themes, but if we brought it down to the nitty gritty, what are we actually talking about here? And what does it look like if I do this in my life? So let's keep reading. I'm, I'm back in verse 23. Again, Paul is speaking to the Athenians. He's like, I, I roamed around your city. I considered, you know, the altars and the, and the idols. And then he says this, I even found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Therefore, Paul says, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you. Now, I want you to notice what just happened. Because this is, this is wild. Paul says, I was walking around your city, checking out the idols. <laughs> Remember, the idols that were provoking him. But Paul doesn't say to the Athenians, I was provoked. He doesn't condemn. Instead, Paul does something that's actually really radical. He introduces them to Jesus, but he doesn't go to the Bible. Instead, he introduces them to Jesus using their own way of seeing the world, using their own worldview, their own ideas. Now, I want you to notice this, all right, because I want to drive this home really. This is really, really important when it comes to engaging people who don't value the Bible, who don't value Christian faith, but who are honestly searching. If you look in Acts chapter 17, look at verse 2 of Acts chapter 17. I got my Bible here, so I'm just going to look down for a moment so I can read the verse. Verse 2 of Acts chapter 17 this is when Paul is in Thessalonica. It says this, as usual, Paul went to them and on three Sabbath days reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining to them that the Messiah had to suffer, etc., etc. So Paul's in Thessalonica. He's reaching out to, to the Jews and the converted Gentiles, um, the Greeks who believed in God, and he's reasoning with them from scripture. Now go to verse 11 in the same, same chapter, verse 11. Now Paul is in Berea and it says the people there were more open-minded than those in Thessalonica since they welcomed the message with eagerness and examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So Paul goes to Berea, he presents this message from scripture and the people are like, awesome, now we're going to go and read scripture for ourselves and weigh it up and see if what you're saying is true. Scripture again was central to what Paul was doing in Berea. And it was central to what he was doing in Thessalonica. But when we get down to Athens, 
and you read, and we're not going to go through Paul's sermon today because we're going to do that next time. But when you read Paul's sermons to the Athenians, he doesn't use scripture once. He alludes to scripture. Everything he says is in scripture, but he never actually quotes scripture. Instead, look at verse, uh, which verse is it? 28. Look at verse 28, because Paul does quote someone in his sermon to the Athenians. He says in this, for in him, talking about Jesus, we live and move and exist as even some of your own poets have said, quote, for we are also his offspring. So Paul does quote someone in his sermon to the Athenians. He quotes a pagan poet by the name of Epimenides. And this is the only quotation in Paul's entire sermon. So what is Paul actually doing here? He takes the message of Jesus and he presents it using language and categories that the Athenians can understand. And he tells them using their own language and categories, this unknown God that you guys are worshiping, I know who he is. And then he quotes one of their own poets to drive his point home. You see all this religion in Athens, guys? The truth is what you're really searching for is Jesus. What is Paul up to here? Paul is doing something that is very, very, very rare in, in, in the West. We rarely ever do this in the West. But if you've ever been a missionary or if you've ever gone somewhere as a missionary, this is common practice. All right, this happens all the time. It's called contextualization. It's a big fancy word. But contextualization is basically the art of sharing the gospel using the language, culture, and categories that a people group are already familiar with. You study their worldview, you look for the fingerprints of God within, and then you use their own beliefs as a way to explain and introduce Jesus. Again, missionaries have been doing this for forever, I mean, for centuries. And this is totally different to attacking, exposing, or insulting someone's beliefs. But here's the key. Here's the key. I think here's the, here's the practical takeaway that I want to give you guys. In order to contextualize effectively, to do what Paul has done here, right? To be able to present the gospel within the frameworks that make sense to the people that you're talking to, you actually, you actually have to understand the other person. And in order to understand the other person, you got to spend time with them. And so many of us, I have found throughout, all, throughout my entire life as, as a member of our church, so many of us are so used to only talking to people who think like us that we've lost the art of understanding people who don't think like us. We've lost the art of appreciating the other. And so rather than seek to understand our cities, we tend to hide from them. Rather than seek to understand our culture, we tend to isolate ourselves from it. And the tragedy of this is that we end up preaching a gospel with language and categories and illustrations that we understand and nobody else understands it. But this isn't what Paul is doing. Paul arrives at Athens and immediately he begins to study, he begins to observe, he begins to appreciate. He's provoked, yes, but he channels his provocation toward the study and appreciation of Athenian culture. And by the time he stands at Mars Hill, he's able to share the gospel in a way that makes sense to his listeners. So a, a really good example, modern example of this from a, an Adventist missionary that I've, I've talked about before as well is, is the book Peace Child. If you've never read that book, get your hands on it. I'm pretty sure you can get it in ABC or Amazon. Uh, Peace Child is the name of the book. And it's a brilliant book about a missionary who went to spread the gospel to this tribal group in Papua New Guinea. And it was incredibly tricky because 
when he got to Papua New Guinea and he began to get to know the culture of this tribe, he discovered something really, really interesting. The, the, one of the things that he's discovered was that the people there actually, when it, when it came to their value structures, manipulation and lying to someone, deceit, were actually seen as a virtue. Now, for us, that's weird. It's like, what? How could that possibly be a virtue? Well, they saw it as a virtue. If you can manipulate really well, if you can, you know, lie really well, deceive, that's a virtue. So what happens when these people are reading the stories of Jesus and they read that Judas was a manipulator <laughs> and deceitful and a liar is that Judas actually emerges as the good guy in the story because they're seeing it through their, through their lens. And so this missionary realized, if I'm gonna be able to share the gospel with them, I've gotta find out how they see the world. I've gotta learn more about how they understand reality because if I'm just sharing the stories the way I share it back home, it's not gonna work because they, they see them through totally different lenses. And so long story short, he discovered that there was a practice in the region when, war, when tribes were at war with each other or they had offended one another. And the practice was that one tribe would take a child and they would give it to the other tribe. And they would say, hey, this child is now yours. You can raise this child as your own. We will never see this child again. It's your child. And that child was known as the peace child because this is what brought peace between the warring tribes. And so the missionary finally hit him, you know? And, and he, went to the, he went to the people and began to present the gospel that Jesus is God's peace child, right? that God gave his son to us to bring peace between us and him. And this is a, a, a beautiful example of contextualization. And like I said, it happens a lot. It, it, this is how missionaries do their job. I mean, it's impossible to be an effective missionary if you're not contextualizing. So it happens a lot in the mission world where we tend to struggle with it is in our own backyard. We tend to not contextualize. We tend to just gather amongst ourselves, get used to speaking to ourselves, and don't stop and appreciate the fact that how we're explaining things may make absolutely no sense to our next door neighbors because we haven't spent the time to understand them, to get to know them, to get to know how they understand the world around them. And we're going to do that in the next few sermons. I'm going to talk to you. We're going to, I'm going to explain briefly. I'm not going to spend an awful lot of time on it, but I'm going to explain how Buddhists think, how Hindus think, how secular postmoderns think, how secular atheists think, just to give you guys a little bit of a understanding a practice on what it looks like practically to understand the way different people groups think and, and relate to the world. So I just want to wrap this up for today though and 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 just come back to these three key lessons that we learned from Paul. Uh, number one, don't burn bridges by focusing on differences. Build bridges by focusing on common ground. Believe that God's spirit is already at work in that person's life and find those fingerprints. Focus on that. Let that be the tools through which you build those bridges. Number two, don't approach people from a top-down posture. Go side by side instead. Journey with them. And remember, there's no point in winning an argument if you lose a soul. And the better part about it is that if you're not journeying top-down, then this sets you free because you don't have to have the answer to everything. It's relationship. It's a, well, here's the, I, I messed up the, uh, I forgot the word that was coming next, so I messed up that statement. Here's, here's what I meant to say. It's a relationship exchange, not an information exchange. So information exchange top down, that's hard. Only a few people have the capacity to do that. But relational exchange side by side, 
all of us can do that. Um, and finally, number three, become a student of your city, of your neighbors, so that you can contextualize the gospel in ways that make sense to them. So as we think about our city for a moment, right? Like I said, we've got a business meeting coming up. We're going to talk about our mission. We're going to talk about what we're doing in our city this year. I want you to think about the city of Joondalup for a moment. 33% of Joondalup is secular, right? That's massive. 33% of Joondalup is secular. This means most likely that 33% of our city has never read a Bible. 33% of our city doesn't know what a pastor is. 33% of our city, the word Jesus is a cuss word and nothing more. 33% of our city church is foreign. They don't think about church. They don't spend any time wanting, wondering whether they should go to church. There's off, always your very rare exceptions, but for to a large degree, church isn't even on the radar. And so do we understand the way these people think? Do we understand the way our city sees the world? Are we studying them the way Paul studied Athens in order to engage them the way Paul engaged the Athenians? And I believe that until we do, um, all of us, until all of us accept this calling to be priests in our city, right? To, it's priesthood of all believers. We're never really going to reach our city. Uh, pastor Marcus, nor any other pastor who comes after me, is going to make too much of a difference. There's logistical challenges. We often have multiple churches. We often live far, like myself. It's really challenging to say, hey, Pastor Marcus is here. He'll do the work. It's not really possible. And it probably won't be possible with future pastors either. But if we all embrace the calling to say, you know what? God has called all of us to be priests in our city, to follow the example of Paul, to engage people respectfully, to study them, to, to, to build bridges with them. I believe we can make an absolute beautiful impact in the city of Joondalup. Ellen White has a few little quotes that I just want to share in closing. Um, the first one comes from Evangelism, page 122, where she says this, let every worker, this is all of us, right? Not, not pastors or elders alone, all of us. Let every worker in the master's vineyard study, plan, devise methods to reach the people where they are. So here, here we see the Pauline examples, all within this one statement, you know, reaching people where they are, studying them, coming up with new ways. And then she goes on to say, we must do something out of the common course of things. We must arrest the attention. And um, in the Review and Herald, January 17, 1907, she wrote this. I absolutely love this quote. From Christ's method of labor, we may learn many valuable lessons. He did not follow merely one method. In various ways, he sought to gain the attention of the multitude. And then he proclaimed to them, the truths of the gospel. And I think all of us have that responsibility to engage in this mission together, to think, to plan, to study, to build relationships. And I believe that as we do that, especially in a pandemic age where we can't really rely on the big programs like we used to, I'm not saying we can't do them at all, but it's volatile. It's volatile. I really do believe that the priesthood of all believers, which is what scripture is all about, is going to be the way in which we reach our city. All right, guys, if anyone wants the notes from what I've preached, um, I'm happy to email them. So just let me know. Happy to email them to you guys. And uh, in the next sermon, we're going to then take a look at Paul's sermon and what he shared with the Athenians. We're going to pick that apart a little bit more. We're going to learn even more practical lessons for engaging our city as well. How would you like an Adventist Bible study set designed for millennials, postmoderns, and unchurched seekers? 
The Road, A Journey Through the Narrative of Scripture is a one-of-a-kind Bible study set that I've designed to communicate the story of redemption to unchurched generations. With 30 chapters in total, you'll get to discover the gospel, prophecy, and even end-time events in a fresh, meaningful, and relevant way. To learn more about this and get your own copy, head over to thestorychurchproject.com.